0: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co-host the channel with Carrie Figdor. Today, my guest is Professor Cheryl Misak. Cheryl is professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto. We'll be talking about her new book, The American Pragmatists, which has just been published with Oxford University Press. Pragmatism is America's homegrown philosophy, but it's not widely understood. This partly is due to the fact that pragmatism emerged out of deep philosophical disputes among its earliest proponents, Charles Sanders Peirce, William James, and John Dewey. Although it is agreed that they are the founders of pragmatism, they also held opposing views about meaning, truth, reality, and value. A further complication emerges in that it is widely believed that pragmatism was purged from the philosophical mainstream and rendered dormant sometime around 1950, but then recovered only in the 1980s by Richard Rorty. In her new book, Professor Misak presents a nuanced analysis of the origins, development, and Prospects of Pragmatism. She shows that pragmatism has always come in a variety of flavors, ranging from the highly objectivist views of Peirce and Lewis to the more subjectivist commitments of James and Rorty. More importantly, Misak demonstrates that pragmatism has been a constantly evolving philosophical movement that has consistently shaped and formed the landscape of English language philosophy. On Miesack's account, pragmatism is the philosophical thread that runs through the work of the most influential philosophers of the past century, Peirce, James, Dewey, Lewis, Goodman, Quine, Sellers, Putnam, Rorty, and beyond. Our book will be of interest to anyone with interests in pragmatism, or in 20th century philosophy. So let's now turn to the interview. Hello, Cheryl Misak. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. It's my pleasure. Today, on New Books in Philosophy, my guest is Professor Cheryl Misak. Cheryl has just published a book titled The American Pragmatists with Oxford University Press. Now, I highly recommend this book, and I recommend it not only to those Uh, who may be listening, who have an interest in pragmatism as a philosophical tradition and movement. Um, But I also recommend it uh, to those with interests in 20th century and indeed 21st century philosophy. Uh, In her book, Cheryl manages to strike a, a very admirable and delicate balance between historical narrative and telling the story of the development of pragmatism as a philosophical movement, um, philosophical exegesis and telling, uh, giving accounts, philosophical accounts of what pragmatists tend to think and how they argue for distinctive philosophical theses, and also first-order uh, philosophical argument of her own, uh, where Cheryl defends. Um, certain philosophical claims that uh, may have their origin uh, in uh, historical pragmatist texts, but uh, Cheryl makes her own case for, uh, in many cases, uh, novel interpretations of those theses. Um, So the book results in something I would say it's uh, very exciting. Uh, We emerge uh, from Cheryl Misak's The American Pragmatists with Uh, A new understanding of pragmatism, both as a historical tradition, an ongoing historical tradition, and as a living uh, philosophy and uh, still emerging and growing philosophical program. So there's a lot to discuss, um, but before we get into the details uh, of the book, Cheryl, uh, why don't you tell our listeners something about yourself?
1: Thanks uh, for your kind words, Bob. Uh, So I uh, was born in a place called Lethbridge, Alberta, which uh, is is within cycling distance uh, from Sweetgrass, Montana, and perhaps that's all the listener needs to know about uh, uh, where I come from. Uh, And I did my undergraduate uh, degree at the University of Lethbridge, uh, then went to work with Isaac Levi at Columbia where I did a master's degree starting to think, uh, uh, more carefully through some, uh, pragmatist themes. And then I went to Oxford, uh, which may seem like the least uh, likeliest place uh, anywhere to work on American pragmatism, but actually it was an enormously fruitful uh, place to study. I worked with David Wiggins, who uh, is one of the very best uh, and finest interpreters of Peirce's thought, and also with uh, Susan Haack, who was then at work, and Chris Hookway, who was uh, at that point at Birmingham. So I was uh, exceedingly well supervised in uh, in what might be thought to be the uh, least uh, likely place to work on uh, American pragmatism. Uh, For about the last 20-some years, I've been uh, at the University of Toronto, and uh, although I still consider myself very much a jobbing philosopher, I have a day job uh, as provost of the university, which uh, keeps me mighty busy, but um, I have found time to uh, write this book. It's taken me an awfully long time, uh, but as I uh, tell myself, uh, it it perhaps was a very good thing that uh, it it uh, took me so long to write it because it uh, is perhaps more careful than it otherwise would have been.
0: Well, excellent. So um, let's uh, launch in uh, uh, to talking about the book. Um, now um, let me begin with just a little background and then I've, I've got a series of, of questions about uh, how the book proceeds. Um, now, um, a common line um, that is often taken on pragmatism, which uh, I suspect our listeners uh, will be familiar with in some form or another, um, has it that um, pragmatism is an intellectual philosophical movement that begins with Charles Perce, William James, and John Dewey. Um, it enjoys some prominence in the early 20th century, particularly uh, 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 for the decades before the second world war. Um, But then it falls out of favor uh, following uh, the Second World War, sometime in the the late 40s and 50s. Um, But then it gets sort of revived or rejuvenated, um, uh, mostly um, by neopragmatists like Richard Rorty. Um, Now, your book um, resists this narrative or common story. Um, On several fronts, and I want to talk about uh, some of the ways in which um, your account of the development of pragmatism uh, and and its current state departs from this account. Um, But one thing that struck me about uh, your book, The American Pragmatists*, is that um, uh, you have a whole chapter about Chauncey Wright. Uh, who was a contemporary of of Person James and a member of the Metaphysical Club, which is uh, this informal gathering of folks around Cambridge uh, where these, some of these um, core pragmatist ideas were first proposed and developed. Um, and you even called Chauncey Wright one of the founders of pragmatism, um, I take it that um, many of our listeners will never have read anything by Chauncey Wright and might not uh, have heard the name before and uh, might not uh, know anything about him otherwise. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Chauncey Wright as a philosopher and then why you think that he um, uh, uh, is among the founders
1: of pragmatism? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so one of uh, the the wonderful things that I discovered in writing this uh, this book, which really uh, started off uh, as being a, a history of well, and finished off as being a history of the whole of pragmatism from the uh, beginning uh, till now, is that I I discovered uh, true uh, gems that had been uh, somehow uh, forgotten um, over the last uh, decades in philosophy. Chauncey Wright's case many, many decades. So Chauncey Wright uh, was certainly thought by uh, the founders of pragmatism, Peirce, James, Oliver Wendell Holmes, to be one of the founders of pragmatism. And in fact, Peirce called him our boxing master. They all thought that uh, Chauncey Wright... Uh, had taught them most of what they knew, and they looked up to him as uh, the really, really smart guy in the room. Chauncey Wright uh, also uh, had uh, Darwin share this view of him. Uh, Darwin had uh, been in correspondence with Wright and had published a pamphlet of Wrights on uh, uh, symmetry in in, uh, uh, the uh, petals of flowers, and uh, he was just one of the leading uh, minds of the time. He, uh, like Peirce, never managed to get himself a proper job in academic philosophy. He uh, he was a, a computer for um, a mathematical organization and found a bunch of shortcuts to let him do all of his years' work of uh, of computing in a few months. And then he spent the rest of the year staying up too late, drinking too much, uh, smoking too much, talking too much, and uh, burned himself out and died uh, uh, altogether too young, didn't write very much. And this is why we don't uh, know all that much about him. But Chauncey Wright is critical for understanding uh, the origins of pragmatism, because Wright was a little bit older than Peirce and and James and Holmes, and uh, was this uh, kind of guiding uh, spirit uh, behind uh, pragmatism. And Wright was... Uh, very clearly working within the British empiricist tradition. So Hamilton, Bain, Mill, these were the people that Wright was so heavily uh, engaged with. And when you look at, at James and his radical empiricism and uh at Peirce's work, you, you get the sense that this uh that pragmatism is very much in uh the empiricist tradition, and yet you you find hardly mentioning Hume uh, James hardly mentioning Hume um, and really um, with the exception of uh, some of James's work not much focus on uh, the empiricism that is uh, built into pragmatism and I, I think a lot of this is because they they took it for granted uh, that this is this was where they were coming from and they expected everyone to see it but with Chauncey Wright that comes out very very uh, strongly um, and in order to understand the origins of privatism, you have to understand uh, what philosophers, uh, Chauncey Wright and Person James, uh, were really intellectually engaged with, and... Uh, and Besides the British empiricists, it was uh, Auguste Comte. So they really thought of themselves as being a part of the positivist movement, and that's why there's this strain of verificationism uh, to be uh, anachronistic in, uh, in their thought. So they were, they were verificationists before the logical empiricists uh, arrived on the scene, but verificationists in a much broader sense where they wanted to uh, not merely um, bring value under empiricist principles and maybe find it uh, drummed out of the scientific enterprise, but actually bring value under the empiricist tent and make sure that uh that our empiricist worldview made room for value and art and uh and other um, things that fell uh. By the wayside when the logical empiricists came along, so understanding Chauncey Wright is critical in understanding the whole arc of uh, of American pragmatism, including the arc that spans the period of time when the logical empiricists uh, came to the shores of America.
0: Well, okay, excellent. So let's um, then pick up on uh, 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 the, the particularly the Purse um, and James uh, relation. Um, uh, which is uh, a, a theme running through your, your treatment of the of these two fi- figures early in the book, um, uh, because the answer you just gave um, sort of emphasised some of the the common ground between them. They are of a kind uh, of empiricist. Um, there are in both person and James um, a certain uh, certain kinds of verificationists or what we now recognise as verificationist tendencies. Uh, certainly, the idea that philosophical ideas. Um, get their content from their connection to experience or practice or various kinds of doings and undergoings. Um, uh, but part of your story is a story about a struggle, um, particularly between a uh, and James, but then eventually between purse James and Dewey um, over uh, the meaning of the kind of empiricism that pragmatists are committed to. And um, maybe even if it's, if it's right to put it this way, a struggle over the meaning of, the pragmatic maxim, and the conception of truth that pragmatists are
1: famous for championing. Uh, Can you sketch for us a little bit of that part of the story? Good. Um, So so this really, uh, as you note, is the very heart of pragmatism, the idea that all of our philosophical concepts need to be uh, linked to our practices. So Uh, the pragmatic maxim in Peirce's hands, uh, at least the versions of the pragmatic maxim that I think uh, are best, are of the following sort. He says that we have to look to the upshot of our concepts in order to rightly apprehend them or understand them. So Peirce backs all of uh, his thoughts about pragmatism and the pragmatic maxim with an extraordinarily complex uh account of meanings in a theory of the signs of signs and all of that uh is is well worth uh careful attention but um for these purposes really what what we need to understand in terms of the uh the uh dynamic between Perse and james is it is it Uh, Peirce's pragmatic maxim was adopted by James, and that maxim is, in order to understand a a concept in philosophy or any kind of concept, you need to uh, see how it cashes out uh, in action. And so when they uh, turned that maxim on the concept of truth, uh, Peirce uh, arrived at the following. Uh, A belief is uh, true if it would stand up to whatever reasons, evidence, argument uh, you, that belief would be exposed to. So a belief is true if it would be indefeasible or not defeated by uh, whatever uh, it might encounter. In James's hand, the maxim played out very differently. James said, well, a belief is true if it's good to believe and uh what's good to believe james said will differ from uh from society to society but also from person to person so he uh, is infamous for arguing in the will to believe that if a belief uh, would be good for me and maybe not so good for you, uh, and but let's take his most uh, his most infamous example in that paper. If the belief in God were good for me to believe, if it had positive consequences for my life um, and it, it, it didn't have the same positive consequences for your life, then I would be... Uh, justified in believing that it was true and it would be true for me. And you uh, could just uh, uh, equally as justifiably uh, uh, not uh, uh, move towards that belief and it would not be true for you. So here we have one maxim. If you want to understand what truth is, uh, look to how it plays out in our practices of uh, deliberation and inquiry and and the like. And with purse, you get you get something, uh, um, all of these words are problematic, but something more realist, you, you get, if a belief were to stand up to all the evidence and all the argument and reason uh, for and against it, then it, uh, if it really were indefeasible, it, it would be true. And with James, you get, if a belief is good in some much looser sense of good uh, for me to believe, then it's true. So, Perse and James and Chauncey Wright wrangled over this and uh, and some of the wrangling is highly uh, entertaining but also really illuminating in terms of seeing just how early on these uh, divisions uh, in the pragmatist uh, tradition uh, manifested themselves so Perse, uh said of james's the will to believe that uh, that that uh, That paper and the thesis in it uh, injures a serious man very much. So just not, a, not something a serious man should, uh, should be uh, going near. And uh, Chauncey Wright uh, has a wonderful uh, set of correspondence um, uh, about the will to believe in its early, uh, early drafts. So James had, had, had flagged his thoughts uh, that would eventually appear in that famous paper um, in a few remarks published in The Nation. And Chauncey Wright, uh, and everyone, uh, because James was already uh, uh, famous and well thought of, Chauncey Wright uh, uh, read these remarks in The Nation and then wrote letters saying, uh, I've Set a, a plan in action where I'm going to uh, uh, lie in wait for our friend uh, William and uh, take him on about uh, these uh, silly things that he says in the nation. And so he he uh, one of one of his two occasions where he lies in wait for James's uh, at James's father's house, and he says in one of these letters, um, "I said to the youth." To, like, <laughs> James, uh, J- James asks him whether he's read the, the remarks and information and Chaunty Wright says yes and James says and you know did they seem uh, good to you, and Chauncey Wright says, uh, well, I didn't find any typographical errors in, <laughs> in, in the document. And then he launches into um, a uh, an attack on these ideas, which in the, that early instance, uh, James had made even stronger than uh, in that uh, that still strong paper, The Will to Believe, where James said, if a belief is good for me to believe, then I have a duty to believe it. And, oh, right. and Chauncey Wright uh, argued him into the ground saying that the, the most you can say, even that is uh, is excessive, but the most you can say is that you have a right to believe it, not that you have a duty to believe it. So they were, uh, they, uh, James Wright and Peirce, were wrangling over these issues right from minute one. And it, uh, it's very interesting to see that, these very divides uh, are still um, very present in the pragmatist tradition. And, you know, I think they're present in the pragmatist tradition because they speak to uh, important issues that, um, you know, are not about to go away. So I don't think it's a bad thing that uh, pragmatists are still lining up, either on the purse right, more objective side of the, uh, of the scale, uh, and on the... Jamesian I would say Deweyan uh and then certainly Rortian, uh you know radically subjective side of uh, of the scale my book is very much an argument that Peirce James and or, sorry Peirce Lewis and uh, uh, Wright have, uh are are right that it's much better to be an objective pragmatist than a radically subjective pragmatist
0: right so if, may, let me ask you just a a quick follow up question about Peirce um and i know that uh, many of our, our our listeners will also know that um uh, a lot of your your previous work has been uh, uh focused on um defending a, a particular version or interpretation of, of Peirce's infamous uh i think it's safe to say uh, uh end of inquiry conception of truth um uh and the, the and and this these issues come up uh uh in in your in your current book as well um so uh as you presented Peirce's view of truth um, you you used a lot of would and, and 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 woods uh, a lot of terms that that, that sound um, modal in a way that might be suspicious to um, uh, naturalist empiricists uh, who, who might have some qualms about would bees um, uh, as I understand it from reading your book, Peirce himself struggled with the modal force of the what would stand up to attempts to undermine it or what would respond well to subsequent testing and, and, uh, and scrutiny, um, uh, particularly when it comes to questions of, in, in, in some of his writings about... Um, Diamonds that never get put to the test, whether they can be called uh, hard uh, or things hard only if you actually perform the test of scratching them. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about Purse's own sort of struggle uh, with what we might think of as... Sort of more nominalist, uh, uh, flat-footed interpretations of uh, the pragmatic maxim, and of his subsequent, uh, consequent theory of truth, and some of the the, the, the subsequent ways that he employs in, in trying to to solve some some problems with it.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so Peirce corrected a mistake that he made in that very early "How to Make Our Ideas Clear" paper. So, so let's just take a step back and and uh, remember that. Peirce hardly published a thing, so he he couldn't find a job in academia, and uh, spent uh, his uh, his life uh, as a working for the U.S. Uh, Coast Survey. And when he he was a difficult guy, and eventually got uh, turfed from that job, and then uh, spent the rest of his life in his up in his cold attic with not enough food, writing. Uh, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of philosophy, the vast bulk of it, uh, never really to see the light of day, still not really uh, to see the light of day. So uh, a very few early papers of Peirce's were published in the Popular Science Monthly, and Peirce bemoaned the fact that he had to uh, publish in that journal, and hence he said, tailor what he said to uh, a very certain kind of audience. But in that early How to Make Our Ideas clear paper, where he uses the indicative conditional, if a diamond lies on the bottom of the ocean floor and is never scratched, then what sense does it uh, make to say that it's hard because uh, uh, no one will scratch it and it won't be tested and hence is not hard. And very uh, very soon after the publication of that paper, he, he realized he just made a mistake. And he spent the rest of his life trying to correct, <laughs> saying, I, I replace that is, that indicative, with a would be, with a subjunctive conditional. So were a diamond to lie on the bottom of the ocean floor and never be scratched, you can still say of it, uh, were it to be scratched, then it would resist, and hence it is hard. And so he, uh, you're right, he um, wanted not only to invoke that subjunctive conditional when it came to both uh, unpacking the notion of meaning and unpacking the notion of uh, truth, but uh, uh, he also uh, spent a lot of time uh, talking about whether... uh, whether um, would if you like, uh, can be said to uh, exist in some way. So he was, a, was an antinomalist. And as you also pointed out, this seems to pull against the naturalist uh, strains that lie at the very heart of empiricists. Yeah, uh, and pragmatist uh views but this is actually what distinguishes pragmatism from uh many other varieties of empiricism and the best way to see this is to look at Peirce and then the, per- the pragmatist who is his successor and that's c.i lewis okay. so both Peirce and lewis wanted to make room in their logics and both were crackerjack logicians uh Crackerjack formal logicians for uh, modal logic. Uh, so in the very same way that pragmatists want to um, make room in their empir- empiricism for value judgments as being genuinely and robustly uh, judgments that respond to experience, it's just not going to be the kind of sensory experience that, uh, you know that other um, kinds of inquiries into middle-sized dry goods uh, are responsive to. They wanted to say that uh, that uh, the subjunctive uh, and would-be's uh, and modal um, uh, notions are as real as uh, as other kinds of. Uh, of, uh well as as real as the indicative so this is something that uh, distinguishes pragmatism f- from other kinds of empiricism and it's uh it's critical in work of Perse- and it's critical in the work of Lewis and both Perse and Lewis sometimes say the following look if you want to understand what we're getting at let's say we says you want and Lewis says, if you want to understand what I'm getting at when I invoke uh, a subjunctive conditional here, think of it this way. We hope that our uh investigations would uh result in an upshot, and that hope is really what we're talking about when we uh when we express uh our account of truth in in terms of a subjunctive conditional
0: right um one, one further question, uh, just to pick up on this, um, particularly about the way this issue plays out in uh, the Persian account of truth. So um, a moment ago, when you presented uh, the Persian thought of truth and contrasted it nicely, I thought, with uh, the Jamesian thought, um, you uh, were able to identify Perse's view of truth without making any mention of the thing that has come to haunt <laughs> uh, uh, versus, uh remarks on truth, which is a, a, a series of clumsy, I, I take it, um, uh, and maybe at the end of the day, uh, unintentional or, or, or not fully intended references to something called um, the end of inquiry or the ideal community of inquirers. Um, so the thought is it's typically expressed as, and and I'm now putting it in a way that makes it, um, uh, uh, overtly silly. Uh, thought that truth was what the ideal community of inquirers would believe at the ideal end of inquiry. Um, now your way of, of, of presenting the Persean view of truth makes no mention of either of those, uh, uh, devices, um, can you say something about
1: about that? yeah, so so um that's completely right this uh, this uh, uh, one phrase has haunted uh, the pragmatist uh, account of truth uh, since purse penned it. so so he uh, I think only once uh, mentions the ideal end of inquiry or and I think only once mentions the opinion that is uh, fated to be uh, agreed upon at the end of inquiry. And these, uh, these snappy summaries of his view of truth have stuck to the pragmatist uh, view much uh, to its misfortune. So, so again, uh, one has to understand that Peirce hardly published anything. And if you want to really get a grip on what he thought about truth, you have to read this vast uh, uh, array of, uh, of material. And, uh, what he was trying to get at in these very, as you say, clumsy attempts at uh, giving snappy summaries of his view of truth is just this idea that we were talking about before. So how do you unpack this um, very cumbersome idea of uh, a belief that would uh, stand up to uh, everything you could throw at it for uh, uh, into the indefinite? Future. Well, one way of of uh, of capturing it is to say, as uh, Peirce sometimes actually very frequently said, we hope that our that our inquiry, uh, the one that we're engaged in here and now, uh, would uh, result in an upshot that just couldn't be improved upon. That was what he more often than not said uh, that his account of truth was. On occasion, he took another flyer at, at at saying what it was. He said, well, so what I'm trying to say is the belief that is fated to be agreed upon at the end of inquiry is what truth amounts to and And that just is so problematic he saw the problems he tried to you know tinker with them, and then he abandoned that way of putting uh the point and but as 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 you and I both know, that is what has stuck uh and I am trying very much to unstick uh, <laughs> uh that uh snappy summary from the pragmatist account of truth, at least the Persian pragmatist account of truth it's it's not his considered view and uh and it's, uh, it's just unfortunate and unfair that that's what uh, seems to have stuck.
0: Right. Um, so this uh, provides an occasion to um, to ask you, to, before we move on to uh, uh, something else I want to ask you about, which is I do want to hear more about uh, the role that, that Lewis and Quine, in particular, play in, in your story of pragmatism. But um, uh, while we're speaking about person truth, um, I want to, just ask you to speak a little bit more about John Dewey um, and uh, the role that he plays in your story. Um, and uh, I mentioned Dewey at this point because uh, there is a, 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 an often uh, cited uh, footnote in John Dewey's 1938 book on logic um, where Dewey um, praises Peirce's conception of truth. The Peirce gives the best definition of truth there is, um, as uh and then dewey uh attributes to purse the end of inquiry review that you 've just uh tried to to distance pragmatism and and even purse himself from um, uh, so can you tell us a little bit about uh where Dewey fits in uh earlier you 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 put Dewey and James into the same uh category as the the non-Persian interpretation, or the non-Persian strand, uh, the more subjectivist uh, strand in, in pragmatism. But uh, can you fill us in a little bit more on uh, uh, where Dewey's philosophy uh, resides in this narrative?
1: Yeah, so that that really is a, a, a major question in uh, the trajectory of pragmatism. So the the, the received view goes like this: Perse and James. Uh, founded this doctrine in 1870s, uh, and Dewey picked it up and was, uh, uh, after James's great glory as America's uh, most uh, eminent philosopher and academic, Uh, again, America's most eminent philosopher and academic. And then somehow, uh, after Dewey's death, pragmatism just disappeared from the philosophical scene. And then the received view has it that it uh, disappeared from the philosophical scene because those bully boys, the logical empiricists, came around and just uh, chased uh, pragmatism out of uh, the best uh, philosophy departments uh, in America. Uh, and, and you, uh, uh, Bob, have this lovely uh, term for this received view. You call it the eclipse view. And uh you and I uh uh both uh agree that it's uh, a wrong headed view of the history of uh of American pragmatism. So so what's the right view? Well and, and actually let me um let me throw in another another view that is even more wrong headed, and that's the Menand view, right? So this Menand in this uh best selling and Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Metaphysical Club, which was the club uh, that uh, Pers Ch- uh, Chauncey Wright, William James, and Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, uh, founded in 1867, where pragmatism was born? Uh, Menand argues for. Uh, I should choose my my words carefully here. I want to say "lunatic view." <laughs> but, uh, Menand argues for a, a a very unusual view of the history of American pragmatism. He uh, takes pragmatism to be uh, more or less Richard Rorty's view and uh, quite rightly uh, says that this is uh, the view that uh, that James had, but he identifies pragmatism in 1867 with Richard Rorty's very, let's uh, call it, subjectivist view and says that after the, the Civil War was such a searing event for uh, Americans that uh, at the end of it, They were just really uh, sick of the ideas of certainty and uh, confidence. And they uh, wanted nothing to do with anyone who said that they knew the truth about anything. Look where the truth uh, uh, got them. It got them all of the horror and bloodshed of the Civil War. So pragmatism was born out of that uh, desire to uh, not uh, have views of truth uh, that invoked any kind of certainty. Um, once the uh, Cold War came along, uh, people wanted certainty again, and so pragmatism was in the doghouse, and when the Cold War uh, uh, ceased to become uh, an urgent uh, thing on people's minds, uh, certain uncertainty could rule again, and hence Richard Rorty would come in with pragmatism and make it popular again. This is just so far from uh, uh what was actually happening on the philosophical ground that uh that part of what I want to do in this book is 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 correct both that received view and menand view so so what is uh, you know, what is the accurate story of the trajectory of pragmatism and where does Dewey fit into it uh, so my uh, on on the account that I give uh we, we had. C.S. Peirce, Chauncey Wright, William James, Oliver Wendell Holmes carve out uh, a view of truth that spoke about the role that uh, truth plays in our practices and, uh, and links uh, truth to our practices of inquiry and investigation. We have two different kinds of pragmatism growing out of that metaphysical club. One is the uh, more subjectivist Jamesian view and one is the more objectivist person right view, um, person Chauncey right view. And then uh, you have with uh, James's death, Dewey taking over and the view um, after Dewey's death seeming to uh, fall uh far 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 into the backwoods so i think this is not um uh as i say an accurate account of the trajectory of pragmatism uh what you have at the uh end of the james purse uh period is uh c.i lewis taking that famous course from William James and Josiah Royce, where they did battle over pragmatism and empiricism, or sorry, pragmatism and idealism. With uh, uh, James arguing for pragmatism and Royce arguing for idealism, you had C. I. Lewis taking that famous course uh, at Harvard as an undergraduate. Siding, uh, it's not clear where he was siding as an undergraduate, but at the end of the day, he came out very much in favor of the uh, Persian, more objective view of pragmatism. And you had John Dewey actually pick up the idealism of Royce and, uh, and others and present a, a, a kind of quasi-pragmatism that uh, I want to argue really derailed uh, uh, pragmatism as um, as uh, as, a, as a movement. It's a, it's a bit more complicated than that because an essential part of my story is this: if you look at what C. I. Lewis did with that Persian account of pragmatism, you see that view uh, not only continue uh, in American philosophy, but actually flourish and be uh, the uh, dominant view of of, of philosophy in America. So Lewis uh, was Quine. Quine took his view directly from Lewis, unacknowledged. It's actually one of the uh, most uh, shocking episodes, I think, in uh, the history of uh, philosophy, how uh, Lewis's student, Quine, uh, adopted Lewis's view wholesale, unacknowledged, and then took it forward, sometimes calling it pragmatism, sometimes not, uh, but uh, but demolishing his teacher, and his teacher Lewis uh, was uh, an advocate of or sucked into the myth of the given and the analytic-synthetic distinction, both of which are just uh, complete and utter falsehoods. Um, but you have the view uh, of Lewis and Peirce continue uh, through uh, American philosophy in the hands of Quine, Goodman, Sellers, and many others today, but it's not called pragmatism anymore. It's called something else. So my uh, story is one where Dewey is a kind of uh, uh, almost a distraction in that he um, uh, led pragmatism off to a, a, a certain kind of pragmatism off to a dead end. And if you follow that uh, more um, uh, promising trail, the one that starts with Peirce and goes through to Lewis and then Quine and Sellers, you see that pragmatism is actually uh, alive and very, very well.
0: Well, can you tell us then a little bit about um, about what what you think uh, the distinctive contributions of Lewis uh, were to to the pragmatist tradition? Now. Um, uh, I take it that our listeners will be familiar with Lewis um, because of the uh, I still think regarded as a uh, groundbreaking uh, work on uh, modal logic. Um, uh, and I also take it that the, uh, the famous paper on the pragmatic conception of the a priori and, and certain other parts, um, uh, certain other things that became uh, the, the, the mind in the world order book um, are, are, are probably uh, well enough known generally. But um, Lewis, uh, I think you're right to uh, have suggested Lewis's. Um, n- no longer uh, read in the way that uh, uh, he was uh, certainly in his lifetime and, and shortly following his death. We've, uh, we've sort of uh, uh, written him out of the uh, the story of philosophy in America in a lot of ways. Um, so what, do, what, what are we missing by not uh, uh,
1: looking carefully at Lewis's work? So we're missing a lot uh and uh, i'm the first to say that uh you know that i missed it the first time around as well so you know i, I wrote a book on uh pragmatism and ethics and politics pragmatism and value and uh, argued that uh if you if you uh, looked at Peirce's view you could um, uh, y- you could find some really interesting uh and uh, sustainable uh things to say about uh, about value that, that really stood up to um, all of the, uh, the, the pressing questions and the excellent debates that we currently have about value and objectivity. And I wrote this book uh, kind of sidestepping Dewey because although Dewey seemed to me to be the pragmatist who spoke about value and who put value on uh, our radar screens in, in such a uh, 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 an effective way, he didn't actually have the answers in his own, uh, brand of pragmatism. And I just, I managed to write this whole book without, uh, without understanding that C. I. Lewis actually is the, not just the pragmatist we should all be turning to. If we want to understand, uh, value and objectivity, but the philosopher we should turn to if we want to, uh, come to a good understanding about this important, uh, set of issues and I had read Lewis as an undergraduate in my second year in 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 that callow undergraduate way, and then had sort of packed him off in the back of my mind as someone I had read and thought at the time that I understood, and then hadn't hadn't encountered him again in uh, the rest of Uh, not only my education but in the rest of my attending philosophy philosophy colloquia and conferences he was just absent from the philosophical scene uh, even though my philosophical scene was the pragmatist scene. Uh, That's that's really striking. Uh, It's also really striking that as I said a few minutes ago if you look at Quine's work uh, you can take Quine 's most important passages and and uh, set them against uh, passages of lewis's and you wouldn't know from whose pen each passage came from. Uh, the views are identical, nonetheless Quine and Goodman and Morton white, all lewis's students. Uh, lowered their guns and tried to blow off their teacher's head about uh, <laughs> uh, about the analytic and synthetic, saying that Lewis, you know, uh, had some uh, outdated and uh, and foolhardy uh, distinction between the analytic and synthetic. False. Uh, Lewis had precisely Quine's view that uh, what we that the the framework questions the, the questions that we held true come what may were things that were chosen and we could by doing a lot of damage to our conceptual framework by making lots and lots of revisions we could um revise those uh framework beliefs and uh they were all fallible and uh yeah. I think if you have a view of the analytic with a priori where uh, those sentences are fallible, you don't have the kind of uh, bifurcation that uh, Quine and others were railing uh, against. They also said that Lewis um, was uh, an adoptee of the myth of the given, and it is just crystal clear that uh, he was not. He uh, also took uh, experiential inputs to be, uh, experiential beliefs to be fallible. What he wanted to do, though, was to distance himself from Dewey's brand of pragmatism, where Dewey was only looking forward how does this belief change the knowledge situation in the future? Lewis thought that in order to uh, um, uh, assess whether a belief uh, is true or worth believing, you also had to take a look at its precedence, not only how it will play off uh, play out in in the future and see if it if it's grounded in uh, in Experience in the right kind of way, not grounded with certainty, but if it if it if it has some kind of experiential touchstone. So Lewis really was the uh, pragmatist, and remember, Lewis and Dewey um, were alive at the same time, and they engaged with each other. They both looked at each other's views and, and thought them quite foreign, despite the fact that they were the two uh, famous pragmatists in the world. Um, but Lewis wanted to uh, have a pragmatism where you could make sense of the ideas of making a mistake, of learning something, of coming to a better view, and of distinguishing between what is valuable to me or what seems valuable and what really is valuable, and and you'll find a parallel distinction in his more general view of truth, you have to be able to distinguish between what seems true to me or to us and what really is true. And that distinction in Lewis's pragmatism and in Peirce's pragmatism is uh, what I want in this book to point to as the kind of pragmatism that we should all be interested in. So this kind of pragmatism says, this kind of pragmatist says, look, uh, you can't uh, talk about truth uh, without talking about human practices of inquiry and deliberation and investigation. And you can't talk about value without talking about what's valuable to human beings, what human beings experience is valuable. So in James's view, the trail of the human serpent is over everything. But this kind of pragmatist, the Purse. Lewis kind of pragmatist says, you still need to make sense of the idea of making a mistake, improving your belief, and you still need to hold on to that distinction between what seems to me to be valuable, what seems to me to be true and what really is valuable and what really is true. And Dewey didn't always hold on to that distinction. uh, And uh, neither did his, Uh, successor Rorty but that other kind of pragmatism the kind that started with person Lewis that is actually the naturalist project that we find so many people now uh, completely uh, engaged in and and embedded in
0: right so this also now provides an occasion for wondering uh, about the ninth chapter of the book which is titled um, the Rise of Logical Empiricism. Um, so if on your account, um, pragmatists, uh, both in the what you're now calling the, the Purse-Lewis trajectory um, and uh, this other trajectory, which you, you, you're associating with James and Dewey and eventually Rorty, um, uh, if they're both trying in some way to preserve um, an account of value uh, while remaining... Uh, um, respectable naturalist empiricists. Um, uh, what's the role of, of of the logical empiricist in this story? Such that um, uh, the logical, impi- such that logical empiricism deserves a chapter. One might think, well, the logical empiricists are are, are have to be anti pragmatists, and one way we might even see that on, on on the account that that you've already sketched, Cheryl, is, well, the logical empiricists you know, if if we know them as anything, we know them as people who think that, um, you know, there aren't, you know, value judgments, you know, can't be correct or incorrect or true or false. They're just, you know, hoorays and boos. Um, so what's the role of of, of the logical empiricist uh,
1: in the story then? Good. So the, the role is absolutely critical um, and it's critical in two ways. So again, let's just first take a step back and think of this trajectory. You've got Person James, and then Dewey and Lewis in the in and in the continuous next generation. When Dewey and Lewis are at their height, the logical empiricists come to America. And uh, then in the next generation, you have uh, Quine, Lewis's student, uh, uh um, been critical of logical empiricism but still continuing in that naturalist tradition and, uh, and leading to some of the um, current naturalisms we see today. So, so one reason it's important to talk about logical empiricism is that the logical empiricists are just a continuous part of this story. But the much more interesting reason uh, to talk about them is that when the logical empiricists came to America, they did not as the received view would have it, find uh, a homegrown philosophy that was uh, set against their scientific, logical way of approaching uh, the uh, central uh, questions and the central methodology of, of philosophy. So as I said very early on, Chauncey Wright... And Peirce and James all thought of themselves as being engaged in the positive, uh, the positivist project, as uh, as August Comte had uh, had carved it out. It's interesting; they didn't talk much about uh, about Hume and uh, the other British empiricists, but they had had a kind of verificationism embedded in the pragmatic maxim, and uh, and. Their definition of belief was Bain's definition of belief. It was a dispositional definition of belief. So when the logical empiricists came to America, they found a homegrown philosophy that was very, very like their own. And in fact, they uh, saw Dewey as, uh, as a kin, Uh, as a brother of theirs and Dewey was on uh, the editorial board of the Encyclopedia of Unified Science. He uh, was one of the co-authors of the introductory volume and then he was the sole author of another volume and that volume was called A Theory of Valuation. And at that point Dewey and the logical empiricists all thought of themselves as uh, as being engaged in the very same project. And that was uh, bringing all aspects of human endeavor under the principles of science. And uh, uh, you can dip into any volume of Dewey and just hear this again and again and again. That's what he was doing. He's bringing value into uh, the realm of science. The difference is, the difference between Dewey and the logical empiricists actually is twofold. One uh, and I alluded to this earlier, Dewey and all the other pragmatists had a commitment to retain a place for value, whereas the logical empiricists were open-minded about this. Either there would be a place for value, it would be kind of uh, uh, scientific uh, uh, um, uh, look at uh, value judgments, or perhaps uh, value judgments would be declared meaningless. And hence you get the infamous uh, boo hurrah theory of meaning, what Lewis called the ejaculatory theory of meaning <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was one difference right so, so the pragmatists were committed to finding a, a place for value and to, be, and to and to thinking hard and 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 in a sophisticated way about value and the empiricists you know they were going to see uh, you know they were going to toss. Uh, the dice and see where uh, you know uh, what you know what what uh, tossing the dice is wrong metaphor. They were gonna, they were they going to take a look at value and it either survived their scrutiny or uh, or it didn't. Another difference was that uh, Dewey was no logician, and very soon uh, uh, after he started engaging with the logical empiricists he started saying disparaging things about logic. And the logical empiricists uh, started to realize that he really couldn't do it. Dewey had uh, had been in Peirce's logic class, Uh, while Peirce was for a very fleeting time an instructor at Johns Hopkins. And there are these wonderful letters from Dewey. He's writing to his professors back home in Vermont saying, Mr. Peirce thinks that philosophy is logic. I hate this class. I'm (laughs) dropping it and I can't do it. I hate it. And he drops the class and uh, he and Peirce have a very testy relationship for the, for the rest of. And, uh, and Lewis, on the other hand, was, as I say, a crackerjack logician, and he, yet he engaged with logical empiricism by arguing with them about value and about modal logic. But seeing that they all shared uh, the same uh, the same driving theme, which was to uh, think about uh, value and art uh, and science using only uh, empiricist. Uh, uh, principles with Lewis a little bit of camp thrown in and with purse, a little bit of camp thrown
0: in. Right. Um, can you now uh, sort of uh, bring us to the, to the latter stage of the book, particularly the, the last couple of chapters, which um, in which you deal with uh, sort of the neo pragmatists. And we've been talking a, a lot um, uh, about Richard Rorty uh, sort of on the sidelines of things, um, but also Hillary Putnam uh, uh, figures into the story, and then um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, where pragmatism stands today, and what
1: uh, where, what the frontiers are for uh, for pragmatists? So, so for a long time, and certainly when I was uh, when I was uh, a student, uh, Richard Rorty was the face of pragmatism. Uh, I was an undergraduate. Actually, I was an undergraduate when both philosophy in the mirror of nature was published, and Hillary Putnam's Reason, Truth, and History. So actually, you know, even that betrays the received view. Right. So when I was an undergraduate, you know, these were two big books, two big, right. important books. And and these were the two, uh, the, you know, the two uh, successors of the two different kinds of pragmatism still slugging it out, you uh, know, 100 years after uh, the birth of pragmatism. So. Richard Rorty is very much the successor of especially James, but also uh, uh, Dewey's pragmatism. And uh, Putnam is very much the successor of uh, Peirce and Lewis and Sellers and Goodman. So um, uh, we see another uh, very interesting issue, uh, I want to say arise, rise, but actually had been lingering uh, in uh, in pragmatist thought right from uh, the beginning, but it really became prominent. The idea that perhaps the pragmatist could make use of the discotationalist account of truth and that uh, would be all that you need to say uh, about truth. So this is Rorty's big move. Uh, his, his On his version of pragmatism, uh, we do not aim at truth. Uh, Inquirers have no use for the uh, the concepts of truth and objectivity all truth is is uh, a kind it 's re- let let 's call it redundant uh, to say that uh, p is true is to say nothing more than p itself and this thought was indeed uh, always present in pragmatism this this deflationist thought about truth, so truth is not uh, something that goes beyond uh, first-order inquiry, right? So on Percy's view, it doesn't go beyond first-order inquiry in that the, uh, the upshot of first-order inquiry, if it results in a belief that really is indefeasible, is true, is the truth. And for James, uh, the upshot of really local first-order inquiry, like my mm-hmm. own, uh, uh, results in the truth. So that that kind of deflationist thought was always um, lingering in in, uh, in in the work of the pragmatists, but Rorty uh, really made an explicit move. He said, "Look, we don't need to talk about truth. All you need to know uh, about uh, truth is that uh, if uh, uh, p is true, uh, p is true if and only if p." And we've seen a lot of pragmatists and a lot of other people just leap on uh, what I want to call this uh, quick and dirty uh, um, solution to the problem of truth. Putnam was very clear that uh, this uh, was a quick and dirty uh, solution to the problem of truth and one that the pragmatist uh, should not adopt as uh, as an easy way out. The pragmatist needed to say more about truth than the mere deflationist thought or the mere uh, redundant thought. And, and here you see, I think, a very, very interesting uh, parting of the ways uh, of and a new parting of the... No, actually, I'm going to take that back. An interesting parting of the ways between pragmatists that might look new, but actually is, uh, is not so new. Um, and, uh, and this will lead me into, uh, into your final question, which is, uh, what am I going to work on next? Mm -hmm. So if you look, what I'm going to work on next is a book called Cambridge Pragmatism on how, uh, the pragmatism of Cambridge, England, i.e. Frank Ramsey's pragmatism and Uh, Wittgenstein's pragmatism, was uh, very, very heavily influenced by, in Ramsey's case, C.S. Peirce, and in Wittgenstein's case, William James. Now, Ramsey is is thought by everyone to be uh, one of the most articulate proponents of the redundancy theory of truth. But in fact, Ramsey, when he died at the age of 26, after having founded uh, Modern Decision Theory, two branches of economics, a branch of mathematics, (laughs) uh, he was truly brilliant. Uh, When Ramsey died at the age of 26, he was writing a manuscript on pragmatism and truth, where he was very, very clear that, uh, that what he wanted to say about truth was, First, uh what was captured in the redundancy thought, and thats that there's nothing more to saying that uh uh p is true than t- than there is in a certain p, but that that was just the first step in uh a uh suitable pragmatist account of truth. You had to then go on and say, um, build norms into uh, your account of truth. And again, kind of make this distinction between uh, the mere assertion that P or the belief that P and uh, and uh, that P is really assertable or deserving of our uh, belief or assent rather than uh, just merely being believed or assented to. So Ramsey... Uh, is uh, and uh, well well, Ramsey is the inheritor with Lewis of Peirce's view of truth and I think that uh, what all pragmatists should be doing right now is taking a hard look at Ramsey's very very sophisticated and subtle view of truth and then returning to that persian ramsian view and uh not being tempted by the easy seductions of just resting with redundancy uh or the disputational theory
0: well excellent um we will uh keep an eye out then for uh your next book on cambridge pragmatism um But for now, Cheryl, you've been um, uh, very, very generous uh, with your time. uh, And um, I want to thank you uh, uh, for talking to us on New Books in Philosophy uh, about your new book, um, The American Pragmatists*, which is just out, I think, uh, maybe even uh, this week, just out uh, with Oxford University Press. Well, thank you. Well, uh, I will be in touch uh, with you. And um, uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks. Bye bye now. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Cheryl Misak of the University of Toronto. We were talking about her new book, The American Pragmatists, which is newly published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talish, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.